Welcome to Design by Us, the podcast where we discuss how humans design the world. I'm Ravi. And I'm Luigi. <laughs> As designers, we tend to be focused on solving problems, whether that's problems with usability, ergonomics, aesthetics, or even experience. However, do we sometimes forget about the real problems facing our users? Problems like systemic inequality driven by race, history, and society. Yes, Ravi. And that's why we are delighted to be joined by Arjun Seti. Arjun is a human rights lawyer, author, writer, and most importantly, a fighter for justice, who endeavored across the United States to capture the stories from people targeted and severely affected by hate violence. During this episode, we will discuss how our society has been designed and affected by unwritten social rules and explore how we can reimagine our social structures. Besides all of this, Arjun is also a fantastic human being. It is our pleasure to welcome you, Arjun. My pleasure to uh, be on with you guys today. Awesome. How are you doing? I'm all right. How about yeah. you all? It's good. It's good. Um, let's just let's just get started. And Ravi and I were when we when we were preparing for this episode, we we were talking about our drivers as human beings. And the the thing we want to start with is what wakes you up in the morning. What's how would you describe your mission and and your drive? Um. Wow. I see that you guys start with the easiest questions first. I know. I know. It's a warm <laughs> one. <laughs> um, you know, it's funny. I'll reverse, I'll sort of uh, uh, flip the question by asking and sort of posing what lets me and allows me to sleep at night, sleep at night peacefully. Um, and for me, that's being faithful to my values. That's being a decent person. That's being a kind person. Being decent and kind, not because you want something in return, but because that's just a way you want to live. That's a way you want to be in the world. Um, and that's really been my moral compass. My moral compass is supporting the silenced, um, the marginalized, the excluded, um, and using whatever access, privilege, and power I have to amplifying their voices um, and giving a platform to them to share and tell their stories. Awesome, awesome. Well, I guess let's get into some of these uh, current affairs then in light of that of that mission. So uh, thankfully we are post-election, uh, yet Trump scored 8 million more votes than he did in 2016. So in some ways, the, Trump's user, uh, user base or supporters, uh, the number of them have grown. Um, and in some ways you might say that 71 million people in the US just voted uh, in favor of Trump, and in doing so, they justified racist and oppressive behavior. So a question out of all of that then, uh, Arjun, to you would be, based on your experience and your obviously your knowledge and, and your gut feel as well, do you think America is more or less divided than, say, one year ago? Wow. Um, so I... I look at the 2020 election and I agree with the characterization that it was not a repudiation of Trump. Um, yes, Joe Biden won, and that is unequivocally good. That is unequivocally anti-fascist for the United States and the world, but it is extraordinarily troubling uh, the amount of votes Trump did garner, um, how much support he still enjoys, and the ways in which he still is casting into doubt 
the outcome of the election. You know, I read an interesting piece recently about how, you know, the presidential election isn't actually too dissimilar from a sporting event. Meaning, if you have conviction and faith that the right team won in a fair contest, then there's a real opportunity to sort of move forward. But if you don't have that faith and you don't have that conviction, um, then it leaves a lot of anxiety and unresolved feelings. And so one of the concerns I do have is even though Biden is absolutely the president-elect, even though Biden will be sworn into office at inauguration in January, um, Trump is doing and will do everything he can to discredit American democracy this election um, and that's divisive and that's corrosive. And so I, I don't know if I can say that we are less divided today than we were a year ago, um, but I personally feel really good um, that Joe Biden won. Um, I feel good that he did make headway in states like Arizona, the Rust Belt, Georgia, uh, but there's a lot of work to do. And I think mm. one of the lessons of the election regardless of what political party you are, regardless of whether you consider yourself a, a radical leftist or a mainstream liberal, um, there's a lot of work to do in America. Talking about that, all of that work to do, one of the things that I, I admire from in the United States is, for the time I live there, is how people love, and I'm saying this in, in quotes, their country and the culture, and they're very patriotic. And the American dream is something that a lot of people just bring up very often. So my question would be, American meritocracy is, is perhaps a justification for systemic inequality. Like, how would you compare both? And, and based on your experience, like, how do those two yeah, values interact? You know, I, I feel like so much of my education day to day and throughout my entire life has been about debunking this idea of American exceptionalism. And so I was born in the United States. I went to public high school. I went to public elementary school. And from the time I was young, I was taught that America is exceptional and America is extraordinary. That somehow we didn't have this history of injustice or struggle or racism that other countries had. That somehow you can come to this country and shake a tree and money will fall down, and that there is a ladder of opportunity that anybody can climb if they work hard enough. And the more I've studied, the more I've learned, the more I realize how unequal the American system is. And to start, let me tell you a little bit about an experience I had last year. Yeah. Um, I visited uh, the Lynching Memorial and Museum in Montgomery, Alabama, And so Montgomery, Alabama has a storied place in American history because that was the site of the Montgomery bus boycott, um, which was a pivotal moment um, in the movement to end separate but equal um, laws in the United States. And so in Montgomery, these sites just opened up. Um, there is a lynching memorial where they actually document um, thousands of stories of African-Americans who were lynched in the United States through hating, through dismemberment, um, through shooting, um, all extrajudicial acts of terrorism. And they have a museum, and it's called the Legacy Museum. And it's literally called From Enslavement to Mass Incarceration. 
And that framing is intentional because we've seen throughout American history, this country has actually designed laws, policies, and institutions to discriminate and incapacitate African-Americans and communities of color. Mm -hmm. um, and so systemic racism today is real. We see it in the context of the daily stories of police brutality in America. We see it with respect to the criminal justice system, right? The United States is home to 5% of the world's total population, houses 25% of the world's total prison population. We've seen it in response to COVID, right? Yeah. We've seen that Black Americans and communities of color are disproportionately affected by COVID. Why? They are less likely to have access to health care. Many of them live in intergenerational households, and so they can't necessarily get um, uh, the separation from younger folks and, and, and from older folks to kind of a, a, a keep the virus at times at bay. And they're overrepresented in professions considered essential in emergency. And so whether you are an Amazon worker, whether you are uh, working frontline um, as a delivery person or at a Walmart or a Target or at a grocery store um, or as a nurse, a nurse's assistant, um, they're disproportionately impacted in that way. And that mm. is systemic racism. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you, you know, it's really interesting you talk about um, different races and actually different kind of places in the social hierarchy. Um, in like British politics, there's a saying in the UK that we have issues with class and not with race. Uh, and that actually classism is a bigger issue in the UK than racism, racism is. Um, for you as someone looking to shape society for the better, which for you is the, the bigger evil almost? Is it social class hierarchies or, or racism? And obviously, I guess you've already touched on this, but to what extent are they interlinked as well? I mean, I think they're interlinked, right? And so one of the impressions that I couldn't shake when I left Montgomery and specifically that museum telling you about um, is how important reparations are, right? So when you understand systemic racism in the United States of America, when you understand the ways in which black folks were literally tortured, persecuted, deprived, there is no way that they can mm -hmm. ever have a fair and equal shot to their white counterparts. And so for me, um, I think they're both important. They both operate in similar ways. Um, but I also feel that um, we need to be talking about both and class provides and socioeconomic issues provide an opportunity for solidarity, right? Because I think one of the biggest gaps in the world today is the gap between the haves and the have nots. It's really, it's, it's really interesting. You just touched on, on, on reparations there because that seems like quite a direct way to, to solve this. And particularly in the UK, I'd say, we're more of a fan of indirect solutions. So could you talk a little bit more about how, um, obviously in the States or in the UK or, or in any society, how you would see something like that, that, that transfer of wealth working um, and the benefits of it? So I will tell you um, in an act of humility, um, I am not an economist by training. Um, and so I am not the best person to design uh, the system for reparations. But mm -hmm. let me just share a kind of few observations that I think can help inform the conversation, right? So throughout different times in American history, right, we've actually created compensation funds, right? And so by act of Congress, after 9-11, there was the 9-11 compensation fund. And somebody actually, and a team, did the interviews, did the work, and figured out, okay, here's how we should apportion 
these funds to people who were directly impacted by 9-11, families who lost loved ones on that day. We saw the same thing with respect to Agent Orange, right, um, in Vietnam. And so I do think, and those are obviously sort of smaller examples, but I do think that there are ways, um, and there are people who've actually studied this, um, to actually figure out how do we go about compensating and making folks whole for ways in which they were excluded, uh, uh, deprived, and property actually taken, you know, decades and decades ago. That's the first thing. Two, it's also interesting if you think about it just in terms of what we're seeing across the world today. So, for example, take Brazil. Um, I am no fan of Jair Bolsonaro. Um, as far as I'm concerned, you know, Modi, Bolsonaro, and Trump, they're sort of the tripartite fascist wing uh, uh, sort of across the globe. But by some accounts, Bolsonaro at this moment is enjoying some of his most favorable ratings during his entire tenure in office. And that's because in the wake of COVID, they decided to give regular stimulus payments to all those who were impacted. So in the United States, for example, we had one set of direct payments and we haven't had additional stimulus that included additional direct payments. And in Brazil, they've had a series, right, of direct payments. And again, by some measures, poverty in Brazil right now is lower than it's been in years, right? And so what you're actually seeing there is a, what you might call a socialist intervention by a fascist leader. Um, and I say that only because you know, reparations can be lots of different things. Reparations is not universal basic income. They're different. But I also feel like we are starting to see the seeds of universal basic income emerge in places that you wouldn't have otherwise expected. And so that's another way to be thinking about it, albeit from a different context. Mm -hmm. Something you mentioned COVID a few times and how it exposed the reality of what jobs are important and not also education, kids that are living in intergenerational um, households, perhaps they don't have the space uh, or the internet or, or yeah, the, the equipment to actually take online classes, right? So it's, it's just expanding that division uh, and, and creating an, an education gap in there. So with that in mind, with that thought in mind, now there is a new precedent this problem is 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 clear let's say to to the new and and the new administration uh perhaps you might disagree but what are the next steps like how would you think the government will act, act and and reimagine and rebuild that american system and i really appreciate your use of the word reimagine because that's what we need to do right and so we have seen just in the last nine months, right? A case study in structural yeah. inequality and structural racism, right? So again, we've seen who has been disproportionately harmed by COVID, right? It's, it's women, it's communities of color, it's folks who are classified as um, emergency frontline workers in, in, in some cases. Uh, we've also seen, right, food banks, in this country that meander for miles and miles. We've seen the government fail to provide stimulus um, to support small businesses. And, and this is really important, right? Because 
at least under the Constitution of the United States, I think one can argue and one should argue that the closures that we've seen, the mandatory closures, amount to a government taking, right? So these businesses are failing not because they were financially imprudent, right? Not because they had bad business judgment, but because of a once-in-a-century global pandemic that wasn't foreseeable, yeah. right? And so there are so many family businesses, small businesses, that are potentially going to be shuttered forever. And so we have to figure out how to make them whole. Um, we have to figure out how to democratize healthcare, even right now with the distribution of the vaccine, right? What yeah. does that look like? You brought up internet. There are such extraordinarily searing stories of students, literally, in some cases, riding their bikes to the libraries or to their schools, sitting outside the library and school because it's the only place they can get Wi-Fi, right? Mm -hmm. Not every student has reliable Wi-Fi at their house to join classes via Zoom. And so it, it's, it's, it's difficult. I mean, some people have called this recession in the United States a she recession, a she set. I forgot the exact term, but, but getting to the point that women have been so disproportionately impacted because they've had to shoulder primarily the additional responsibility and burden of also managing and taking care of the households. And so I do think we need to reimagine these things. And we also need to be talking about climate change. Right. There's no question that that because of what we've seen with COVID, right, climate change, I think, accelerated the spread of the disease. Um, we've also starting to understand that, like, right. I mean, we don't exactly know the origination of COVID. Um, some people say it came from a lab. People say it came from a bat um, in a potential market in China. Uh, but the fact is, is that, you know, when you're exposing human beings and, and animals that that are are meant to be in different ecosystems, right, you're going to create these exogenous outcomes, right? Yeah. Um, and so we need to be mindful of that. And we need to be uh, um, um, thinking about that. Yeah, I, I mean, I, this might seem off. Go ahead. I, I was just going to say, you know, I had a conversation with somebody the other day about Tesla, right? And lots of people have ideas and strong feelings about Tesla. Um, what I feel very comfortable saying is this. Um, exploration, innovation, an invention when it comes to green energy, batteries, EVs, should be a global Manhattan project, right? Mm -hmm. This should be a multi-trillion dollar intervention led and spearheaded by governments across the world. And guess what? They're not doing it. It'd be, it'd be really cool to see like a COVID star response in the same way that we all got our shit together for COVID. And, and they're not um, doing it. And that's for me, one of the reasons that people are valuing Tesla as highly as they're valuing it. And they're valuing EV companies and green energy companies and battery companies as highly as they are, because that's where the innovation is happening because our leaders and our governments can't do it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, talking, um, you, you touched on like the origin of, of COVID-19, which, which is unknown, with some people saying it's from a lab, etc. Uh, one of the reasons why people can, I guess, discuss the origin of COVID-19 is because of the American ideal of, of free speech. Um, you mentioned in your book, American Hate, uh, that the ideal of free speech is sometimes used or often used as justification for hateful comments leveled against minorities. I had a really interesting conversation with my parents um, who've obviously been in the UK and the UK has changed 
a huge amount over the last 30 or 40 years, but they genuinely believe that if you could quantify racism, the amount of racism in the UK would be the exact same. It's just that people are less free and able to kind of like communicate their racism and actually things like Brexit and things like that have actually allowed them to kind of just spew out more vitriol um, or, or feel more justified in doing that. So there's a question in here, I promise. Um, in, in, a, in, a, in a fair and more equitable society, um, perhaps a society that's also prioritizing investments in green energy and uh, small businesses. Uh, but from a free speech point of view, should free speech be managed or regulated in, in, a, in that kind of society? You know, I mean, this is a topic uh, on which very smart people uh, can disagree. Um, Here is my basic takeaway for how I look at free speech in the context of the 21st century, in the context of digital media, social media, and everyday global interactions. Um, In the United States, for too long, the conversation about what is hate speech and how to regulate it in free speech has been dominated by lawyers, right? Mm-hmm. And lawyers should be part of that conversation. But I found through my work and through my travels across the country that there are survivors of hate speech across the country who have extraordinary things to offer to the discussion, who can talk about how they were trolled online and how it led to, in some cases, PTSD. I can introduce you to Muslims across the United States who, while walking their young children to mosque on Friday prayer, had to walk by gun-toting white supremacists saying, Muslims, go home. And I personally feel, right, that there has to be another way, right? That I shouldn't have to walk by a gun-toting white supremacist on my way to a Sikh Gurdwara. I'm a Sikh American, and that's why I mentioned the Sikh faith. Um, And so I do think when we have these conversations, we need to have lawyers, but we need to have mental health professionals. We need to have survivors. We need to have psychiatrists. We need to have all of these different fields thinking about hate speech, the consequences of it. And then finally, we also need digital technologists, right? Because guess what? I think you had a, a, a you could make a better argument in the 70s and 80s that the answer to hate speech is more speech in the context of regular everyday protests in the streets. But in the context of bots, uh, uh, government troll armies, it's a different game, right? And book, mm-hmm. right? Literally, Facebook became a tool for genocide in Myanmar. It's enabled hate violence and lynchings in India. I mean, literally right now in India, lynchings are so common that they're organized on social media and the videos are uploaded online. Now, Facebook might tell you, oh, that's a violation of our policies, right? But like the hate speech that happens that fuels those lynchings, it's lawful and it happens on Facebook every day. And so in the context context of actually digital viral media, by the time people figure out what happened and organize, you might already have genocide and atrocity on your hand. And we've already had that in numerous instances. Yeah, and I suppose that could also manifest itself in, in smaller ways. Um, recently in the UK, there's there a video that went viral um, of, a, of a Sikh boy getting beaten up um, by bullies, um, literally outside school. Um, and I assume, and this is an assumption not based on any information, but there would be an empowerment in the eyes of those bullies for their racist views that might be generated online. Um, or at least validation of, of those of those views. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I haven't seen that video and I'm sorry to hear it. I, I, I just feel that, 
you know, free speech, uh, 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 loyalists or whatever, or, 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 or traditionalists, whatever you want to call them, um, they refuse to adjust and adapt in the context of the 21st century. And we are now living through one of the fastest periods of innovation uh, in human history. And I think we've got to be open um, uh, uh, to different formulations um, and different ways of thinking and regulating these technologies. Mm -hmm. um, just moving forward into what would be next, I have two questions that are kind of linked into one. Uh, number one is, if we need to make a change, who has the power? Is it the top 5%? Is it politicians? Is it our communities? Um, and then once we know who has the power, what changes need to be made? Our policies need to be changed. Uh, what do we need to put in place just to create a, a, a new structure? You know, I mean, <clears throat> I think theories of change are often particular and historically specific and case specific. Um, I think in the American context, one of the things that I struggle with the most is sort of what I call the perversion of American democracy. Mm. And so, for example, it's something like 90% of Americans favor meaningful gun control, right? And I mean, the rest of the world it laughs at us and, and in some ways like is aghast at us, right? Because you see these stories of, 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 of indiscriminate gun violence or mass shootings in America and you understand – why is this happening? There are more guns in America than there are people. And yet, despite more than 90% of Americans wanting gun reform, we can't get there. And that's because of the outsized role of lobbyists, lobbyists like the NRA and because of wealthy elements who will do anything to keep their guns. Yeah. And so when I think about it, I, I think people absolutely matter. That is absolutely the engine of change. The change always comes from the bottom up. But at the same time, you can also have institutions that get captured. And so, for example, I would say the Supreme Court of the United States in many ways at this point is basically captured, right? Amy mm -hmm. Coney Barrett was appointed to the Supreme Court a month before the election. She herself said years ago it would be inappropriate for a judge to be confirmed. The Republicans who appointed her said it would be inappropriate for a judge to be confirmed, and they appointed her nonetheless. And we see this time and again, and it goes back to what I said before, right? Which is, there are so many people who don't give a shit what the Supreme Court says anymore, precisely because they don't have faith in that institution. Um, and so while I do feel that, again, change does come from bottom up, um, institutions matter, especially government. And, and I do think that, at least in the United States, we've got to figure out a better way to get control of these institutions, um, to, to, to sort of take them back if we ever had them, yeah. uh, and to make sure they're in service to people. Yeah. One, one question for me, and I think uh, Ravi might have a, a last one later, but moving forward for, on that, we as humans, as, as individuals, how can we act today? In your book, you mentioned something uh, regarding um, communities and the support they can have for people affected by, by, by hate crime, right? H how can we as a community support each other and, and move forward? You know, this summer um, after the murder of George Floyd and, you know, a lot of people saw that video and a lot of people, you know, saw the protests that were happening, not just across the United States, but really across the world. It was an extraordinary moment of resistance. You know, one of the things that struck me was the community of mutual aid 
that I found in the streets of DC for those 30 days. And so for example, every night I went out, there were people who were handing out sandwiches, they were handing out meals, um, there were health professionals, just everyday people who were providing support in the event that you know somebody had been tear gassed or, 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 or whatever it was. Um, there were people providing directions, there were people um, letting folks know their rights, people filming, um, and there was a real community um, and that was extraordinary. And I think that sort of gave uh, longevity to the protest and it actually helped fuel us to go on longer than we otherwise would. Um, and so for me, again, going back to what you said, the first and, the, and the sort of the front line of defense is community, right? Like, I love the fact that, you know, in my parents' neighborhood, we know our neighbors um, and we look out for one another, right? That's the best defense, right? Yeah. That's the best support I can ask for. Um, I feel safer calling them than I do calling a police officer. Um, and so I think, you know, the most important thing we can do is, is just be kind to one another, be decent to one another, know our neighbors, open the door for each other, introduce, introduce ourselves, uh, be genuinely kind, not because we're, it's a quid pro quo and we want something back, uh, but because that's how we want to live in the world. Um, and if we all do that on our own sort of micro incremental levels, you know, the world in the aggregate looks like a much better place. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what, what a fantastic message to kind of take us into uh, 2021, which hopefully will be, by all accounts, a much better year than 2020 and, and not just the pandemic, but using that disruption to, let's, let's say, make the change that we all want to see, right? Um, so um, with that in mind, Arjun, thank you so much for your time. Uh, if you want to hear more from Arjun, you can uh, follow him on Twitter. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I'm nicer in real life awesome. than, I, working... than I sort of appear on my uh, uh, Twitter uh, uh, timeline. Sometimes people see my Twitter timeline and they meet me in real life. They're like, you're not what I expected. You're like really friendly and nice. I, so I was like, <laughs> well, you thought I was angry all the time? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I certify that. Yeah, yeah. And if, if you like him, awesome. uh, if Arjun likes you, he probably will invite you a pizza or something. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, he'll, and he'll get on your podcast too. <laughs> yeah, and the podcast as well. <laughs> What's your Twitter, That's Arjun? awesome. Yeah. Uh, it's Arjun Sethi, uh, 81. Um, cool. And then on Instagram, I have a private Instagram account, um, and it's called Survivors Speak Out. Um, and that's my book Instagram account. And so you can see sort of photos from some of my travels across the country meeting with um, survivors of, of, of hate violence. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you for mentioning that. There'll be a link in the description to uh, Arjun's Twitter account and book, um, Open Season slash American Hatred, I think, depending on where you are in the world. Um, survivors speak out and you can obviously buy that at all good bookstores if you want to hear more from Arjun. Uh, Arjun, we've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Um, and I guess there's only two final quick questions. Uh, Luigi, what should somebody do if they want to hear more from us or more from the show? They just go on Twitter at designbyus underscore FM. And if they want to follow you, Ravi, Ravi's occupied uh, as usual. Yeah. <laughs> and for me, it's uh, Luigi underscore Dintrono. Okay, cool. And one final question, Arjun, that we asked all of our guests. Who do you think we should interview <laughs> next? Um... Who should you interview next? Um, I'm taking too long. It should be like, um, who should you interview next? Hmm. Um, I would suggest interviewing a, no one in particular, more demographic, um, a frontline healthcare worker 
um, who can speak to um, sort of systemic discrimination in the broader healthcare complex, ways to reimagine it. Um, and again, really get the viewers and listeners thinking about design. Because I think that's the thing, right? The injustice that we see in so many facets of society, this isn't inevitable. It's not natural. These are systems that are designed by humans and perpetuated by humans. And mm -hmm. so one of the things that I've been trying to do is actually just understand why the healthcare system works in this way and how did it come to be that the results are so inconsistent with the values that I espouse and the values of, for example, like any exemplary liberal democracy. That's, that's, yeah, absolutely. And it's that reimagined word that's coming up uh, more and more often, which I think is absolutely apt. So I would absolutely say that this podcast has been brought to you by reimagining or the possibility of reimagining. Um, so thanks for Thank your time. You.